In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to talk about the book of the prophet Isaiah. In particular, I want to focus on why we read from this book so much during Advent. Did you know the first reading for the first, second, and third Sundays of Advent and almost all of the Christmas liturgies that you can attend take their first reading from Isaiah? Why is that so? Stick around and find out. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we explore the sources of the Catholic faith, including the scriptures, the documents of the church, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, and the lives and witness of the saints. St. John Paul II often said, Duke in Altum, set out into deep waters. And our goal here at the podcast is to help you do just that. We don't want to merely provide you with information. Instead, we seek to help you achieve a true transformation and to respond to the Lord's call in your life to live out the universal call to holiness. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the director of faith formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Um, and we're continuing our series on Advent. Um, and this is another episode that's going to be really special if you're watching it on YouTube because there's visual aids. It's show and tell uh, once again at the uh, Institute podcast. So just so I don't forget to show you and tell you what these resources are, um, I want to start by doing that and then sort of get into um, the topic, which is we're going to be talking about the book of Isaiah today, um, the way that the book of Isaiah functions in our Advent liturgy. Um, these are a couple of the things that I was using uh, as I prepared, and I wanted to just make sure I recommended them. So this is a book called The Word of the Lord. Um, it's a multi-volume series by John Bergsma, and you can get it from the St. Paul Center. Um, I think it's four volumes, and it's basically the readings for every single Sunday Mass and extra feast days throughout the entire uh, cycle of, of the uh, church's calendar. So that, that's all three years of the Sunday cycle. Um, and it's and then in addition to the readings, it's got short but really good commentaries that Dr. Bergsman wrote. Um, this is the, the special volume that has reflections on the mass readings for solemnities and feasts, those things which are not just on Sundays but are on fixed calendar days. So um, I, I read uh, his comments on Isaiah here, and it was very helpful. And I definitely re would recommend, if you're interested in kind of entering deeper into Scripture, um, take a look at this set, again, from John Bergsman. called The Word of the Lord. You can get it from the St. Paul Center. Um, uh, then I've also got, uh, this is, this is like a super easy book I think anybody, uh, would benefit from, okay? This one, I do think you would benefit from, but not everybody is going to probably want this. Um, this is, you can see, quite a heavy and hefty volume. Uh, it's called A Catholic Introduction to the Bible. This is the Old Testament, uh, portion, and it's also by John Bergsma, but also, uh, Brant Petrie, they they co-wrote this. This is from Ignatius Press, and it is unbelievably rich. Uh, they go through every book in the Old Testament, which is quite a lot of them, and in each book they offer sort of um, a a overview of like who the author was, what are the main themes, how is the book sort of subdivided, what are scholars interested in, where are the debates, where are the questions. It's got fantastic bibliography. Certainly not light reading. Uh, it's uh, it, it's it's more for people who are doing a little bit more in depth study. 
Um, and it's just a little over a thousand pages. That's that's including the index. So if you don't read the index, it's it's under a thousand pages. It's very very excellent. Um, but it's it's not really something I think necessarily for anybody. But if you really want to dive deep, I, I really would would recommend it. It's a it's a fantastic book. Um, so these are two I really leaned on um, for this episode. Um, I've got over here the Word on Fire uh, Bible. This is the the Gospels volume. Uh, and actually, we'll, I'll probably use this in in the next episode, the last episode of the um, series. So, anyways, just want to make sure that I said what those were and showed them to everybody. And we're not getting any money from that. It's just I really like those books. And if you're interested in the, some some of the stuff that we do here, um, I think you'll find those helpful. All right. So, the real focus of this episode. Um, now that I've done that, is I want to talk about the book of Isaiah, um, which is a, a daunting task because it is a super long uh, book. It's it's over 60 chapters, uh, and obviously we can't cover the entire thing. So what I want to try and do to kind of rein it in a little bit is really look at why we're reading in this in the Advent series, or in the Advent season, rather, why we read from the book of Isaiah. So I've got the lectionary readings pulled up here on my computer. Um, the first Sunday in, in Advent, we have the first reading is from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 63. Right? The second Sunday in Advent, first reading is from Isaiah chapter 40. Third Sunday in Advent, anybody want to guess? It's from the first reading, third Sunday of Advent is from Isaiah. The fourth Sunday, uh, the first reading is actually not from Isaiah. It's from 2 Samuel. Uh, but then, if you look at all of the various uh, masses for Christmas, and there's a bunch of them. There's a vigil mass of Christmas, then there's sort of the midnight mass, mass at dawn, mass during the day, and mass during the night. So there's actually five different Christmas liturgies. Um, for the vigil mass, first reading, Isaiah 62. All right. For the uh, Midnight Mass, uh, first reading, Isaiah chapter 9. For the Mass at Dawn on Christmas Day, first reading, Isaiah 62. For the Mass during the day on Christmas, first reading is from Isaiah 52. Uh, And I forgot to check uh, the Mass during the evening of Christmas, uh, evening on the 25th. Let's see, first reading, Isaiah chapter 9. All right, so... There's Isaiah is the star of the lectionary in in many ways during Advent, um, and that's not like a, a bizarre accident. It's very very intentional on the part of the church to put us in contact with the prophet Isaiah during um, Advent, and I want to help you see why that is. Um, so I'm going to kind of summarize very broadly. Uh, the structure and basic themes of the book of Isaiah. Uh, and then I want to talk uh, after that about two, uh, or, or the sort of, um, yeah, two key prophecies in Isaiah that are really important during the Advent season, and then sort of kind of sum up by saying, why are we reading these passages during Isaiah? So it's kind of, kind of a lot to, or during Advent, kind of a lot to do, um, but that's kind of the goal. So first, the overall structure, right? Isaiah, as I said, is a very long, uh, very long book. I think it's 66 chapters. Um, it's, it's over 60. And in scholarly treatments, it's sort of divided into like chapters 1 through 39 and then 40 forward or something like that. Maybe it might be 1 through 40 and then 41 and forward. But around the 40th chapter, it's sort of part two, right? 
And the first half of the book focuses mostly on the relationship between Israel and their Assyrian captors, right? So there's two major captivities that the uh, Israelites uh, uh, experience, um, and you see this in, in the books of the prophets, the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile or captivity. Um, so in, in both cases, Assyria and then Babylon conquer and, and are, you know, lording their authority over the people of God. And in Isaiah's uh, time, uh, both of these are taking place. So you see sort of the end of the Assyrian um, exile uh, and then the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. Or those are both captured in um, the, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And in, in a, a very broad way, the whole book of Isaiah is um, focusing on really two sort of critical aspects of the Israelites. And that's, in on the one hand, they are being unfaithful to God. They are not living in accordance with the covenant. So they are suffering. They're suffering uh, being under the, the power and the authority of the Assyrians. But also present in Isaiah is this hope for restoration and consolation. So the book of Isaiah, you could say, is about suffering and consolation. And the causes of suffering mostly is the infidelity of the Israelites. And then the restoration is because God wants to restore them and bring them back. It's not because they've worked their way out of it, but because God wants to have mercy on them and pardon them. And so you see kind of throughout the overall structure of Isaiah, different portions of the story where it seems like Israel is getting back on track, and then, you know, sin might rear its head again, and, and then they have to suffer again. But, but throughout the sort of long uh, trajectory of Isaiah is this hope for restoration and consolation. And, and in this way, Isaiah as a prophet, right, and, and the book of Isaiah is just very much like the Old Testament. I mean, when you look at the Old Testament um, as a bigger story, this is what you see. You see the people of Israel living in a broken covenant relationship with God. They just can't seem to get it right. God wants to do all of these things for them and does miraculous things for them all the time, and yet they sort of wind up going back to their, back to their sinful ways, rejecting the special relationship that God, you know, wants to um, pour out for them, uh, they just they're they're just not ready for it in some sorts in some you know very very key ways. And you can see this in the beginning uh, chapter. I mean, right away, chapter one of Isaiah. There's this long litany of all of the evils of Israel, all of the sins that they are committing, um, and and the ways that they are displeasing to God. And uh, what was sort of I mean striking about it is. A lot of the discussion at the very beginning of, of the first chapter is Isaiah's, you know, voice is, is you know, giving, giving witness to what, what the offenses were uh, of Israel. There's a lot of discussion about the sacrifices, the prayers, the liturgy being unwanted, uh, that God doesn't want them. And it's not because those kinds of things are bad, but it's because they are not living the covenant that requires that worship. So in other words, it's it's that they are being faithful to offering sacrifices, to doing some prayers, and maybe even some fasting, but they're not really experiencing conversion. 
they're not experiencing a change of their heart. They're merely going through the motions. Um, and, and this is described um, very, very poetically um, by Isaiah. I'm going to actually just read a, a, a section of this so that you can sort of get a sense of, of what it means, because it is quite strong. So this is the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Um, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people does not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And you go over a few verses. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of the he goats. When you appear me before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. And it goes on, right? So this is kind of the, the way the book opens, and it is it is a um, an accusation against Israel that they have not been faithful to the covenant. And there's some similarity uh, between Isaiah and other prophets, uh, and, and in a particular way, there's a link to Hosea. You may remember Hosea the prophet, um, right, is is asked to wed a harlot, and there's this very deep message to to all that going on. In Isaiah chapter one verse twenty one, we have this this uh, this phrase: "How the faithful city has become a harlot; um, she that was full of justice." Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Um, and so there's this sort of identification of Israel as a harlot um, and as being sort of the, the home of murderers. So because there has been such infidelity to the covenant, there is punishment and chastisement coming for the Israelites, right? This is, this is the story of the Old Testament sort of on repeat. Um, they are going to be punished. They're going to lose the things that they are taking pleasure in. They will be stripped of their possessions. Uh, but even in the first chapter, we have this glimmer of a restoration and of hope. We see in verse chapter 1, verse 27, uh, Isaiah says this, "...but Zion shall be re- redeemed by justice." and those in her who repent by righteousness. So this is the way the book opens up, that you have not been living the covenant, but Zion is going to be redeemed. And if you repent, uh, you will be redeemed by justice and righteousness. Throughout sort of the the, the overarching uh, structure of, of the book, you have kind of like five uh, main themes, and I'm drawing these straight from uh, John Bergsma and Brant, Brant Petrie's excellent book. Um, so this is the way that they, that they sort of outline that the main problems, the main themes in Isaiah's book. First is the judgment of Jerusalem, which we've already talked about. Because of their covenant infidelity, they're going to receive judgment and punishment. There's also the problem of liturgical worship. So they're, they're keeping the sacrifices, but they're not keeping the law. 
aside from the liturgical part of the law, and that has to be worked out. A third theme is repentance, restoration, and forgiveness of sins. And you see this even in chapter 1, verse 18 of chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. A fourth theme, Zion as the bride of Yahweh. I already made reference to that that harlot passage in in verse 27. Um, And in the Vigil Mass of Christmas, Isaiah chapter 62, we get another reference to this. So Isaiah 27 says you have become a faith, you have become like a harlot. Um, But if we look at the reading from um, the Vigil Mass of Christmas, um, I'm gonna, and I'm going to go ahead and read that right now. This is Isaiah 62. So that's chapter 1. It says you've become like a harlot, right? 62, way, way later, a lot of stuff has happened. Listen to this description. For Zion's sake I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. Until her vindication shines forth like the dawn and her victory like a burning torch. Nations shall behold your vindication and all the kings your glory. You shall be called a new name pronounced by the mouth of the Lord. You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem held by your God. No more shall people call you forsaken or your land desolate, but you shall be called my delight and your land espoused. For the Lord takes delight in you, And makes your land his spouse. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. And I think just kind of contrasting the opening in chapter 1 with this verse, this reading that we use at uh, the Vigil Mass of Christmas, um, you see sort of like the big story of Isaiah, that on the one hand there is punishment that is due, But God wants to restore Israel, and towards the end of the book in chapter 62, nations will behold your vindication and all the kings your glory. And where in chapter 1 Isaiah is describing Israel as a harlot, here in chapter 62, as a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. All right, so it gives you a sense of this. So that's a fourth theme. Again, first one is judgment. Second is the problem of worship. Third is this repentance and restoration, forgiveness of sins. The fourth over, overarching theme is, is Zion or, or Jerusalem, the people of Israel, as the bride of Yahweh. And then the last uh, part is the judgment of the wicked. And, and there's something interesting about Isaiah uh, where more clearly than any other place in the Old Testament— you see this sort of universal scope of salvation that's possible. In other words, that it's not merely the people of God, the Israelites, who God wants to save, but ultimately through them to save everyone. There's a universal scope. Doesn't actually mean everyone will be saved, but the boundaries of salvation have greatly expanded. They include the nations, the Gentiles, right? So um, the judgment still is going to happen, 
But now the scope of who can be included in the people of God um, has has widely uh, has has opened up much more widely. Um, so those are the the five themes again. Uh, Dr. Bergsman, Dr. Petrie uh, identify um, in in this excellent book. I, I want to draw your attention now to sort of think about why why we're reading Isaiah in Advent, and and I think the best way to do that is to look at at two particular um, portions of the book. Um, that we will will see, uh, you know, point us very clearly towards some of the themes of Advent. And this is important. Before I even read these passages, uh, the Book of Isaiah is a is a tremendous work of prophecy, um, and it it has a lot of dimensions to it. One of the things that's important just to sort of recognize is that some of the prophecies that are in Isaiah can be interpreted as being partially fulfilled in the life of Isaiah, but there's also a sort of superabundant um, ultimate fulfillment that that ultimately, you know, will come later, um, and this is why the Church kind of gives us uh, these readings um, during Advent. So Isaiah is called uh, to be a prophet, uh, receives this, this vision. Um, in chapter 6, he's in the temple, and um, he's, you know, the, there's there's a creature that that flies up, um, and he he covers his face, and and he's you know not doesn't consider himself clean. He he asks his, to have his lips cleansed with a, with a coal from the fire and all that. That's chapter six, right? So Isaiah sort of receiving this gift of prophecy, and you see even in the description of that that Isaiah is going to be prophesying to people who will hear but not understand. So it's it's like you're going to have a tough job because people aren't necessarily ready to hear, but eventually they will. So in chapter 7, um, we have uh, something re- really, really significant, um, and this is one of the signs, uh, the sign of Emmanuel, chapter 7. So starting in verse 10, Isaiah 7, verse 10. I'll read here and then kind of discuss a little bit about the significance of this passage and then sort of how it relates to, um, to Advent. Right. So again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will be will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day at Ephraim departed, since the day rather that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it goes on, but this 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 depiction of the Lord giving you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Right. This is one of the uh, important um, prophecies of you know of of Christ. Um, there is uh, a couple of things to clarify. So, the sign. Right. The Lord says, "Ask of a sign," and Ahaz says, "I'm not. I don't. I don't want to ask." Um, there's a, a larger picture here, um, and and basically. 
Ahaz is sort of being falsely uh, humble. He does like, oh no, I don't want to. I don't need a sign. And, and but but Isaiah's you know narrating that the God wants to send you a sign anyways. And the sign is often the 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 the, the word for sign is often taken to be a a miracle of nature, right? So the fact that it is a sign that's being described gives us some indication that it could be something like a virgin conceiving a child. Um, but there's some discrepancy about the, the word uh, that, that means uh, virgin, that it can be translated in other ways. Um, one of the things that uh, Petrie and uh, Bergsma uh, you know, mention in their, in their book is that translations of a, a single word by itself is is not always the best way to try and figure it out but how is that word used in other places and so as you as you look basically at various parts of the new Test, old testament rather that use um the hebrew word here for it's translated in the rs rsv that i've got here as virgin but that that hebrew term uh when it's used in other places you know can it mean uh, virgin and and they basically make the argument that you can make a good case uh, that it that it means virgin, um, but it's also fair to say maybe it means maiden or young woman or something because there's varying levels um, to these prophecies, right? So that a young woman, sure, a maiden, yeah, has a child, right? And there, in fact, is a child born, and it is Isaiah's son. Uh, and then in the life of Isaiah's son, these things take place, like it says. But added on top of that is a deeper fulfillment of a sign that will be given to the same people later on with the birth of Christ. So there is a, a sort of a, a, a simple and, and more immediate fulfillment that, that, that you can certainly read, and, and this is a, a legitimate way to, to, to interpret it. And then when Christ comes the virgin is the virgin mary the birth is an even more miraculous sign and the son is not merely you know this special son but the son of god um so this is this is just something to uh to take into consideration um and it is you know the de- depiction of a, a virgin you know conceiving a child is is you know very important in our in our Advent uh, liturgy, um, and and helps us to look to you know um, interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. Um, I want to jump though, not not that there's we could say more about uh, chapter seven, but I want to look at chapter eleven um, because uh, in the context of chapter eleven, we see. Um, even more sort of messianic uh, imagery, um, and uh, it, it will sort of help us kind of open up some of the Advent connection. So we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 11, and I'll read here, and then I've got just a, a few notes um, to, to kind of work through. So here's Isaiah um, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall sh- And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, 
and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall feed them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young shall lay down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The suckling child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, and it goes on. Um, there's a, a, a very universal dimension here um, in Isaiah 11 uh, describing this shoot of Jesse, um, who will have the spirit of the Lord, who will have the gift, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, fear of the Lord, um, but he will also judge rightly. Um, he will judge uh, in, and with equity, make his decisions right. And then this dis discussion about animals is really sort of a reference to creation and to sort of a restoration of peace, even of creation, right? Where you have this, this mention of the, the waters of the sea um, kind of pointing us back. So Isaiah here uh, brings up this messianic theme, and he envisions a king like David, but not just a descendant. Um, rather, it's it's another David that comes from the stump of Jesse, which is David's father. Um, he is capable of supernatural judgments based on truth and not on appearances, and he has a healthy respect and fear for God's authority. the The fear of the Lord is emphasized twice, right? And it and it really gives us this notion that this king will, in a singular way, have loyalty to the Lord. This is one of the things that the Israelites struggle with all throughout salvation history is a sort of a, a half-hearted fear of the Lord, a half-hearted loyalty. Um, but this new king, this Davidic king, um, will even do more. So as we look, again, Isaiah is so large, there is a, a notion of the restoration of the people to their land. So we'll go back into um, Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to jump forward to verse 15. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching winds, and strike it into seven channels, that the men may cross dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant which is left of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. That is a new exodus. That is bringing the people back from Assyria back to their land, through a, a, a highway, there's this scattering of water that is mentioned, and there's explicit discussion of the coming up from the land of Egypt and crossing dry shod, uh, the, the Lord will wave his hand over the river. All of these images of the Exodus, right, are, are present here um, in Isaiah. And uh, this is really gets to one of the key, like, visions of Isaiah um, the hopes of Isaiah in his prophecy. He wants, and, and, and is promising, you know, he wants to see in his promise that this will happen, a new king and a new kingdom. So the people of Israel have been waiting for a Davidic successor. They're finally going to get one from the line of David, who will possess wisdom like Solomon and will be filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's new creation. Jerusalem, or Mount Zion, is referred to throughout the book of Isaiah as the highest of all mountains. All of the nations of the Lord are going to be streaming toward it, and there's different depictions where Zion is, is treated as a new 
Eden, so a new creation with Mount Zion at the center and not the Garden of Eden, and a new exodus, right? The Israelites are going to return from their exile and unite, this time with the Gentiles in the worship of God at the mountain of Jerusalem. All right, so this is like real fast, just trying to jump through a couple of things in Isaiah, but I want to just kind of point out one particular thing um, in terms of readings for um, the Advent season. I already showed you that Isaiah is just all over the place as you're looking um, at uh, the, the the readings for Advent and then even into the Christmas liturgies. The Midnight Mass reading from Isaiah is from chapter 9. And really, if you want to actually take a little bit more time than I can cover in this podcast, go to Isaiah 7 and read from 7 all the way through the end of 11. All right, just, I mean, you could read more, but if you just read from 7 to 11, what you see is frequent, like a a repetition of a theme of a child that is going to be delivering Israel, right? So 7 is the the virgin will conceive. Chapter 9, which we read at the vigil, not the vigil, the Midnight Mass of Christmas, chapter 9 from Isaiah, verses 1 through 6. This is the reading. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing as they rejoice before you as at the harvest, as people make merry when dividing spoils. For the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder, and the rod of their taskmaster you have smashed, as on the day of Midian. Um, for you trampled, uh, for every boot that trampled in battle, every cloak rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for flames. And I'm going to jump to a, a different translation here um, because I hate the, <laughs> I hate the translation um, that we have. It's just not as poetic. So we go back here. And for the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder and the rod of their taskmaster, you have smashed as on the day of Midian. For every boot that trampled in battle, every cloak that rolled in blood um, will be burned as fuel for flames. For a child is born to us, a son is given us, upon his shoulders dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful from David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice both now and forever. So a couple of things here. First of all, that's the same translation. I didn't realize. It makes sense that they would use the uh, liturgy translation here in the book, but they've got the alternative readings here. Um, So instead of wonder counselor, God hero, um, we could have wonderful counselor, mighty God, not God hero, and then everlasting father rather than father forever and prince of peace. Um, and I, I like I like that reading, not just because I like Handel's Messiah, but I, I think it's just more poetic. Anyways, aside from the translation, what is this reading describing? This is kind of putting us back into the, 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 the big picture of Isaiah and why we use Isaiah so much in Advent, which hopefully this episode has helped you understand. Let me know if it did. I, I hope that it did. Um, Isaiah is describing the life of Israel during his time where they were under the uh, you know, punishment of being in the Assyrian exile and then the Babylonian exile. They were stripped of their land. Their, their, their temple, you know, was, was, was overtaken. They had lost because they were not faithful to the covenant, and things looked really bad. But 
in Isaiah 7 through 11, you have this description of children who are going to be born, who are going to change this. And in chapter 9, you have this understanding of the son that is given, that was born of this virgin, right? On his shoulders dominion rests. They call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. And who is his child? He comes from David's throne. He reigns over that kingdom and sustains it now and forever. That's not just something that matters for the prophet Isaiah when he was living in the 8th century B.C. or whatever it was, right? It's something that matters for us for salvation history and in an ongoing way. And this is why the church points us so strongly to the book of the prophet Isaiah during Advent, because what is Advent supposed to be about? If you remember the first episode, I read a quote from the Catechism. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but it basically says that the, the Catechism describes Advent as a time in which we, as the people of God today, are called to re-enter into that same sense of expectation for the coming of Christ. We're looking for his second coming and trying to remember his first coming. And we're trying to put ourselves spiritually into that sense of longing for a Savior, into that sense of seeing what the problems in the world are and knowing that we can't fix them, knowing that in some way maybe we've even caused them by our own infidelity, but that the Lord wants to restore us and forgive us of our sins, and he's going to do that through this miraculous birth of a child who will have the dominion of David forever, who will bring peace, who will be the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Um, in uh, a book that I was using um, to prepare for this, um, I found this quote, and uh, I think it's a really cool way to end uh, because it helps us to see the way that if, you, if you're reading Isaiah now as a, as a Catholic, as a Christian, you're studying it, trying to figure out what it's about, and you see it in the liturgy, and the church is giving it to us over and over and over. It's like, you don't like Isaiah? Too bad. Here's some more, right, during Advent. Why? Because we want to be able to figure out spiritually how to enter into that same sense of expectation and longing and need for a Savior, and look forward to the second coming. So I I like this quote. In depicting the return from exile, which we just looked at in chapter 11, as a second exodus, Isaiah employs a back-to-the-future technique that linked God's future act of deliverance, so think here of the second coming, with his mighty deeds in salvation history. In this way, he emphasized, Isaiah emphasized, that the God of Israel's earthly history was still active and capable of intervening in power to form his people's future. So, sum that up, the reason that we're reading from Isaiah at Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours during Advent is to help us remember and re-enter into what happened when Isaiah prophesied of a son who would be born of a virgin, and then Christ was born, and then Christ came, and he did everything that he did, and he's going to come back. We want to be able to do all of that, hold that all together all at once, and that's exactly what Isaiah does. He employs a back-to-the-future technique that linked God's 
future act of deliverance with his mighty deeds and salvation history. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. No, it was a little bit long, um, but you try and summarize 66 chapters of Isaiah uh, and explain how it relates to Advent. And if you can do it faster, awesome. So I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And stick around for our final Advent episode. We've got one more left. Thanks.